This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Welcome to the Spectator's Coffee House Shots podcast. I'm Kate Andrews and I'm joined by our editor, Fraser Nelson, and our deputy editor, Freddie Gray. Uh, so, Fraser, things continue to escalate in Ukraine. Putin seems to be getting even more aggressive. The Ukrainians continue to hold the capital, Kiev, but the attacks are getting more severe. What's the latest? Well, Putin's just given a bizarre interview where he's saying he's got nothing but goodwill towards his neighbours. It's difficult to reconcile that with the column of tanks um, still creeping their way towards Kiev. Interesting, though, that Putin still seems to be shy about telling the Russians exactly what's going on. And it seems even he fears caustic public opinion over there. Um, We're a little weak into this invasion now, and it's quite clear that Ukraine hasn't fallen nearly as fast as people expected. There's no comparison with the way the Russians took Crimea versus Ukraine. We've had some pretty worrying developments, Russia's shelling of a, a nuclear power plant, for example. But by and large, it's still not clear what the weekend's going to bring. We've seen a flurry of diplomatic activity. And now, I mean, at one stage, only Britain was sending arms to Ukraine. Now I think 20 countries are doing so. So there's this um, really quite striking united front, not just amongst the West, but amongst Korea, Japan, Singapore. So that is dramatic. The events in Ukraine are um, horrific, certainly, as you you watch them on TV. And Freddie's come back from the front, so he'll know a bit more about it. But it's still very difficult to tell what's going to happen in the next few days and a couple of weeks. We've been waiting for Kiev to fall for some time now, but it doesn't seem to be any closer to doing so. And while we do hear reports of um, Ukrainians uh, managing to stop Russian tanks in their tracks with British-made anti-tank missiles... It's also very difficult to get an objective report as to just how that battle is going. The Ukrainians, for example, claim to have taken 5,000 Russian lives. Russia says it's closer to 500. And the Americans think it's somewhere in between. These figures, I guess, don't particularly determine the, the course of the conflict. But what is clear is that one week in, there is a battle going on for Ukraine. And for a long time, people thought there wouldn't be a battle. There'd be a simple Russian takeover. So history has proven that's a very different trajectory and one that I certainly wouldn't want to predict. Freddie, you're back in the office with us. We're delighted to have you here. You... I was very pleased Freddie said I was on the front. That's, that made it make it sound much well, more you're exciting. you were in Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, I was in Ukraine. Yeah, you yeah. were. Uh, you were in Lviv uh, and you had been there for, for most of this week. Um, so give us your reading of the situation, what you were witnessing on the ground. Well, I went to Lviv, which is the calmest of the major cities um, in Ukraine. It's calm in terms of actual sort of lack of bombs and explosions and actual military action, but it's it's not calm as in the the atmosphere is extremely tense. Uh, there are air raid sirens and everybody is very emotional, very fraught. It's a very nationalistic place. And if you, if you said that to someone from Lviv, I, I quickly found out they get quite cross because they say, no, we're not nationalists. Everyone in Ukraine is, is nationalist. Everyone in Ukraine believes in Ukraine. And they don't like this idea that you know, that they are more more into Ukrainian nationalism than anyone else. But probably fair to say it's not a sort of representative cross-section of the Ukrainian population. So these people are very committed to defending Ukraine, and they are 
absolutely adamant. Everyone I spoke to is absolutely adamant that they will fight to the death, and they'll use, they use very, very warlike language um, at every opportunity. Um, obviously, they're talking to British journalists, and they expect us to report this back. But it was very notable how uh, militant they are about this and how serious they are. And you got this very strong impression that they mean it and that they will uh, escalate this conflict further and further if they have to. And Fred, when we spoke on Spectator TV a few days ago, you said that unlike in Kiev and the scenes that were coming out from there, people weren't arming themselves in the streets in Lviv yet, not what you were witnessing, at least. Did that change in your final day there, or did you see more people essentially perhaps not arming themselves in the street, but very clearly heading back into the war zones? I think it got a little bit calmer, if anything, while I was there. And obviously I was only there for a very short piece of time uh, and I'm no expert so this was very much a snapshot but when I first got there there was a lot more movement of people I saw queues outside military recruitment centers uh, national guard recruitment centers and so on and then if there was any change it was perhaps that when the air raid sirens went when the first air raid siren I heard there was quite a noticeable sort of rush to the exits uh, to the to the shelters I should say um, whereas by the third day you know nobody really seemed that that sort of maybe it's people just getting used to it mm. or maybe people are starting to think actually the threat isn't as ominous as, as we thought. Mm. Fraser, Freddie mentions there that Lviv is one of the cities that is most calm in Ukraine at the moment. Um, Vladimir Putin and Emmanuel Macron had a 90-minute discussion yesterday evening and coming out of that it was reported that uh, Macron was saying Putin was suggesting that the worst was yet to come and that he planned to go all the way to the end. Now, you know, it's very difficult to know what's going through Vladimir Putin's mind. Most commentators have gotten it wrong at some point during this horrible conflict. Um, but what do you make of that? Do you think that cities like Lviv may soon not be as calm as what Freddie experienced? Well, this is the big question right now. Is the um, war going to Putin's plan or not? British intelligence has been saying no, that Russia failed in all of its main objectives. But after the phone call with uh, Putin and Macron last night, we had a readout from, from French sources, not Macron himself, who um, were saying that their analysis is that the Russian ambitions is to take control of Ukraine, contrary to what, to what Putin says, and that the worst is yet to come. But didn't really specify by what they meant on that. But the, the implication, I suppose, is that Putin would have tried at first to send in relatively light forces to see if you could take Ukraine without much of a fight, that is proving difficult, not least because there's so many um, arms now being sent into Ukraine by the West. So, of course, Putin has got the option of doing to Kiev what he did to Grozny. Now, I somewhat doubt he would go quite that far, but then again, is there anything you can rationalize? I doubted that he would invade Ukraine in the first place. So I, that nobody, in fact, has got much confidence in thinking that there's a rational limit to what Putin does, because rationally he wouldn't have invaded Ukraine in the first place, given the punishment now being inflicted on, on Russia. The, the mute music, as far as we can detect it, is one that Putin is not backing down, and things are going to get a lot worse. That is what we, I guess, expected. The question is how much shelling, really, how much more violence and loss of life is Putin going to go along with? Uh, uh, the big question is, is there a bridge left for him to retreat on? Might he think to himself, you know, I really didn't expect these sanctions. If I take Ukraine, I'm going to be now bogged down in a guerrilla war because they've all got these anti-tank missiles and guns flying around the country. I'm going to be fighting a street battle for months to come. So maybe I should just quietly go home now. There is no sign at all 
that he's thinking about that. No, um, no back channels. His diplomatic message to France is that he's got, he doesn't regret anything and he's carrying on. Freddie, uh, you entered and left Ukraine over the Polish border. Uh, so you witnessed firsthand what's happening there. Yes. Well, so uh, on the way in, it was much more grim than on the way out. Uh, there was a large crowd of North um, African migrants when I came in, and they were it was a very desperate scene. They were obviously very, very poor people who had been shuffled around Eastern Europe and the Balkans. There were different theories as to exactly where they came from. People thought that Lukashenko must have bust them down from Belarus. And there have been all these reports about sort of violent attacks on them, and that's obviously very alarming. But I have to say, I didn't see any of that. And when I came back a few days later, they had all gone. Uh, who knows where they'd gone? I wasn't able to find out. Um, we were in a bit of a hurry. And then on the Polish side, you did see these very moving scenes of women and children, huge queues of women and children, being uh, welcomed, accommodated in Poland, given food, uh, barbecued sausages, uh, fruit drinks, water, little toys for all the children. It was really, it was very touching. Of course, this really irritates some of the journalists uh, parading the borders uh, of Ukraine and Poland looking for racist incidents because they think that they're only being treated like that because they are white. They may have a point, but I think it's an odd reaction when you see kindness like that to sort of feel angry that it's not happening elsewhere so immediately. I think I think it is just a kind of story that Poland needs to be commended for, not just beaten up in the press for the odd racist incident. It's funny that Poland as a country, you know, we wouldn't take anybody from Belarus in the 2015 wave of migration. It refused point blank to take in the migrants that Merkel wanted to give to the rest of Europe. So Poland has had the reputation of being a sort of anti-migrant country. But then again, what people don't really say is that Poland took in one and a half million Ukrainians after the invasion of Crimea, and it found that they integrated very well. So I think um, what, what Poland is doing is being, I guess, strategic about this, thinking it wants to handle to do, do the immigration it can handle and not the immigration that it can't. Sorry, actually, I just wanted, on that point, I'd like to make, I had a very in, uh, overheard a very interesting conversation I was sitting in the airport. I went near the airport to a restaurant because I had a bit of a wait in the end. And I heard a businessman talking to his... He obviously had a business out in Poland and he was talking to his staff. And one of the women was getting quite upset about the situation, was starting to cry. And he was he was slightly sleazy British business character was saying, everything's going to be fine, just keep working, make sure you keep working. And then at one point he said, you know, this is actually... This could end up being very good for us because we needed more high-skilled people and we're going to have we're going to have a, a bit of this because of that. It's an obviously a very cynical businessman a, a attitude to a human, humanitarian crisis. But I thought quite an inter- interesting insight into into the actual dynamics. Mm. So, uh, Fred, last question to you: um, Having been on the ground in Lviv um, this past week, uh, what do you make of what you're seeing in the news now? As Putin's clearly continuing to push his forces into Ukraine. I think it's very interesting that um, he has not, Russia has not been sending its best. Mm. I think that seems to be fairly well validated as, as a point that the, the Russian troops do not, they seem to be the, the young, relatively unskilled ones, the ones without much fighting experience, uh, the old, um, slightly sort of decrepit kit, the running out of petrol. It doesn't seem like it's been actually a very well organised assault. I don't think that's just Ukrainian propaganda. I think there are, that's sort of provable. But then again, the fact that he hasn't sent his best does also leave the possibility that Russia could send its best. And the interesting question is, has the Russian army become more sclerotic than people have realised? I mean, Putin fired his defence minister. What do we read into that? Who knows?
Fraser, Freddie, thanks for joining me. 